This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Friday will be release day for the Biden administration's top-line budget numbers for 2022. An official at the Office of Management and Budget tells Breaking Defense the numbers will include budget target totals for each agency. The White House will likely put out its full budget request later this spring. President Biden's choice to lead the General Services Administration is a GSA veteran. Robin Carnahan was the founder of the state and local practice at 18F. She served at GSA from 2016 to 2020. Fed's group reports she was Secretary of State of Missouri before she came to Washington. The Environmental Protection Agency is the latest to reverse Trump administration provisions in collective bargaining agreements. The agency's restoring policies on official time, union office space and grievance procedures, among others. FCW reports the new agreements took effect Wednesday. The Technology Modernization Fund will get a billion dollar cash infusion soon, but the systems the money fixes will still have to interface with legacy systems. That integration could make or break the success of the new systems. Horace Blackman is Senior Vice President of Consulting Services at CGI. He's former acting consumer advocate for benefits at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Horace, it's great to see you again. Thanks for coming on the program. When you have stuff that's ancient that you're grafting new stuff onto, how do you choose where the edge of the old stuff that you can keep is and where you have to modernize, where you have to upgrade. So, Francis, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. The, 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 the idea, you know, a lot of folks think technology is, is fairly a mystified uh, deal, but, you know, most people deal with these kinds of decisions in their own daily lives. The, the edge is really about a cost uh, paradigm. It's the cost, the cost point where uh, you're spending way too much and you're not getting the functionality uh, from the legacy systems at the point, at, and getting to the point where you want to make the investments into the new system. But we've had that choice for a very long time. It's the buy versus continue to uh, invest in the legacy systems. But I think as we uh, progress in, in some of the systems that we have, we think through these things, there really is a third option that we are increasingly looking at as well, which is really reimagining the value chain and looking at some disruptive kinds of things using the car analogy where you put money into your old car versus you buy a new one, there may be another option like, like the, the analogy of something like Zipcar to really think about something that breaks through that mold altogether. But to specifically answer your question, the nexus is that point where you're spending a lot of money maintaining legacy systems uh, that are not giving you the functionality that's out there in terms of some of the emerging te technologies and emerging systems. So the only shortcoming I see in that, in, in the car analogy, Horace, is that if I'm doing that, I can take Uber for a couple of days till I figure out what I do. A federal agency has to keep doing the mission, whatever it is, while it's in the process of fixing. It's the old, you know, fixing the airplane while it's in the air kind of uh, analogy. So, Francis, you're absolutely right. The mission never ends. The mission is not, it's, there's no political partisanship to the mission, et cetera. Um, but one of the things I think that's most important to think about is, are, are we leveraging technology 
as that force multiplier to be able to empower and enable the mission in the most efficient manner. I think the nexus of where that has to really lie is, is around that, that trade-off of efficiency and costs. And I think uh, we've seen a lot, of, um, a lot of programs that have been put into place that really haven't achieved some of the same functionalities as, as the legacy system. They've fall, fallen short on the interoperability. Um, and I think really optimizing those things to make sure you're, you're you're, um, you're achieving the overall, uh, with the, the old iron triangle of scope, cost, and schedule when you implement these new systems, while at the same time being able to uh, provide any requisite um, legacy integration that you may need that it's there. I want to go back to that idea that you mentioned a moment ago of reimagining the value chain was the way that you said it. When you're talking about that, are you talking about the, the business processes that an organization undertakes to deliver the mission? Are you talking about the functionality that they need to do that? Or maybe even the actual mission itself? Or maybe all of those things? Or did I miss it altogether? No, no, Francis, you're, you're dead on. And I would say it's a combination of the first two. The IT at its core is an enabling capability to, to enable the mission to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. So I think when we talk about um, reimagining the value chain, it's looking at the mission and asking the question, how can we best leverage technology to support this, this mission? You know, we've seen um, this happen across government. The, the line of business uh, initiative is a great example of this. Um, there are programs such as the CDM, the Continuous Diagnostic and Monitoring, where um, those capabilities were centralized within one agency, and that agency becomes a service provider for a number of other agencies. And we've seen that work incredibly well uh, in things like uh, some shared services initiatives, such as payroll, et cetera. Uh, once upon a time, every federal agency had a payroll system, a payroll function, uh, but we've reimagined those. and. Those things have been consolidated to a few agencies. We've seen the efficiency out of that. Uh, we've seen the value chain be reimagined in some other ways that's been exceptionally helpful as well. Where are there the most ripe opportunities, do you think, to reimagine value chains inside federal agencies, Horace? Commonality of, pro commonality of functions and commonality of processes is, is probably the first place you want to look at. I, I kind of harp on uh, the, the, the continuous continuous diagnostic and monitoring effort that's been going on now for, you know, goes back to my days in government, so at least about 10 years. Uh, that's a great example of a of a, a, a contract vehicle. The initiative actually was, uh, that was blended with a contracting vehicle that was put together, had the buy-in of a number of agencies, had the blessing of OMB. Uh, it was centralized within uh, DHS. And you know we're on. I think we're going, getting on to year eight, nine of that program, uh, and that program has worked exceptionally well. A number of agencies are leveraging that. We have transparency in terms of what's happening across government, and uh, we are actually centralizing those capabilities. That that capabilities within DHS, there is a. It, it's now a um, a natural um, center of excellence that's been established there. Um, so that's an example of um, one that's worked exceptionally well. You think about the line of business initiative that dates back even further, uh, things such as grants management, payroll, and a number of other functions that have been centralized uh, to our organizations like DFAS and the Department of Commerce. We've seen those work exceptionally well as well. So the systems are going to run their course. You know, we think about this from the overall total co cost of ownership. 
uh, paradigm that we've, we've thought about. There's a point in time where we have set a, um, an expiration date, if you will, a useful life of technologies. And some of these big systems are no different. So we've got to get to the point where once we hit that, there is a natural decision nexus of what needs to be done whether we want to do some things to augment those legacy systems to give them a little bit more useful life, whether we want to build a new systems that, that, uh, that replaces that function, or whether we want to think about doing something entirely different. Horace Blackman, great to have you back on the program. Thank you. Hey, thank you very much. Good to see you again. Coming next, another bad actor scanning federal systems. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what your agency needs to do today to stop a cyber attack tomorrow. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Agencies are on a new alert tonight from the FBI and CISA after they found advanced persistent threat actors scanning federal systems in a new way. The advisory from the two agencies lists 15 mitigation steps the FBI and CISA say agencies should take. Brigadier General Greg Tuhill, U.S. Air Force retired president of Appgate Federal Group, former federal chief information security officer. Greg, thanks very much for coming on the program. As I read through this, I'm not sure as an amateur whether this is a big deal or not a big deal. Which is it? Well, just like Yogi Berra said, it's deja vu all over again. We've seen similar types of uh, alerts coming out of FBI and CISA. And I think this one is really triggered because they're seeing not only in the federal networks, but there's reports that are coming in from around the world where actors um, out there, uh, particularly those who are using ransomware such as Kring, have been scanning the globe looking for VPN vulnerabilities. This one particular one is attributed to a Fortinet patching uh, that a lot of folks haven't necessarily been done. And bad guys are looking across the world at VPN vulnerabilities and exploiting them. This is just another reminder that, hey folks, we need to patch and protect yourself against uh, bad guys. Again, reading this as an amateur, Greg, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I might have seen a silver lining to this cloud. The APT actors may be pre-positioning for follow-on data exfiltration or data encryption attacks to gain access to critical infrastructure networks and pre-position for follow-on attacks. Since the follow-on attacks didn't, haven't happened yet, apparently, are we catching this at the beginning? Are we seeing this at the beginning of the threat curve rather than the end when we go, oh, no, they got us again? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I think uh, there's uh, ample reporting right now that shows that the attacks have already started. Uh, Ars Technica came out with an article uh, yesterday that spelled out uh, some of the ransomware attacks that folks in Europe have been seeing against critical manufacturing. And as we are seeing here in the United States, sometimes there's a, a, a time lag delay. But the fact of the matter is, for those uh, in the audience, uh, Fortinet and vulnerabilities that have already gotten patched, patches available, but equipment hasn't been patched, uh, bad guys are taking advantage of that. And on the same token, it's not just these Fortinet uh, vulnerabilities that are being exploited and scanned for, but VPNs in general, the Palo Altos, the Cisco, Citrix, Fortinet, any device that a vulnerability has been identified you need to move quickly to patch because now with modern tools, folks can scan the internet looking for devices that aren't patched properly. 
I am puzzled, I must say, by the mitigation strategies. There are 15, as I mentioned, including immediately patch, and then it lists the ports that uh, this particular APT uh, was targeting. But some of this stuff, Greg, is the stuff we've been, you and I have been talking about for 10 years. Regularly backup data, air gap and password protect backup copies offline. Use multi-factor authentication where possible. Install and regularly update antivirus and anti-malware software on all hosts. I mean, duh. At what point do we say, what are you, what's happening that we still have to make these recommendations? Well, you know, it's deja vu all over again. And uh, I, I, I share the sentiment of duh with you. Uh, I think, you know, for our audience members, this is just one of another reminders of, hey, folks, we've been telling you the importance of patching. We are, got, we, we are receiving reports of critical manufacturing in Europe where folks have not necessarily patched and they've fallen victims to ransomware operators who have interrupted critical manufacturing processes in, in the commercial sector. Now we are uh, seeing within the federal government and here in the United States, similar tactics, techniques, and procedures where folks are scanning using just commercial off-the-shelf tools, scanning, looking for folks that have not properly patched these uh, devices. And let's not forget, VPNs are about 25 years old. They came out the same year that the Palm Pilot was introduced. This is older technology, and if you're not going to patch it properly, you're wearing a cyber kick me sign. And the government uh, through our FBI and our CISA partners are just trying to remind, remind uh, folks, hey, do the right things the right way and at the right time. That's due care and due diligence. And we're finding that a lot of organizations still aren't following it. I'm not laughing, grinning, because this concept is funny. It's terribly serious. The cyber kick me idea in my head was just more than I could keep a straight face to, Greg. Um, the, the ransomware issue that you raised a moment ago. It's striking to me that we've seen any number of references, uh, incidents of ransomware at the state and local level. We've seen it in the private sector. We've seen it in mm -hmm. the nonprofit sector. We haven't heard of one yet in the federal government. Why do you think that is? Well, just because you haven't heard of it doesn't mean it actually hasn't happened. Uh, so the, the fact of the matter is, is every organization out there in .gov, .mil, .com, .edu, anybody connected to the internet could fall victim to ransomware. And uh, you know, within the, uh, the government, our position uh, when I was still serving was, we're not going to pay a ransom. No, we're, not just, we're just not going to do that uh, because that just encourages further bad behavior. Um, and within the federal government, uh, we don't have to because we've generally architected so that we can, in fact, either protect that data through offsite storage or other processes, or we might just write off the loss of that data. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is, is any organization that is connected to the Internet needs to be postured to protect against ransomware attack. And these 15 uh, mitigations that are in that alert, they're, they're fair and prudent ones that we've been talking about for more than 10 years. And if you're not doing them by now, uh, you're behind and you're probably uh, not practicing due care and due diligence throughout your organization when it comes to cyber. Greg Tuhill, thanks very much as always. Thanks, Francis.
Up next, decision day for an HR transformation. Straight ahead on Government Matters, knowing when it's time or beyond time to get the ball rolling. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Strategic human capital management has made the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list for the 20th year in a row. Only about 6% of the HR workforce in governments under the age of 30. Lauren DeYoung-Schulman is Vice President of Research, the Partnership for Public Service, former Chief of Staff to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, and looking at this issue. Lauren, thanks very much for coming on the program. You and your colleagues have put together this list of nine signs that your agency should consider an HR transformation. I don't have time to detail all nine of them, but as I look over them and think about conversations I've had with HR people across government in the last year, two years, somebody's got at least one of these. Is that a bad sign for where HR is in the government right now? So, uh, Francis, it's a great question. I think that for all of the things that government wants to do, all the new political leadership, the Biden administration, all of their priorities, human capital has got to be at the top of their list to make sure that all of those priorities, all those new policy agendas are possible. And looking in their organizations and asking hard questions about are your hires actually moving forward on a timely basis? Are you getting good customer feedback from your from your federal employees about HR? Are you losing good candidates because it takes far too long to move candidates through the recruitment to actually hiring process? If you start getting feedback like that, it's a good sign that not only is your HR in need of transformation, but it's the sort of thing that you as a senior leader, an incoming political appointee or an SES needs to pay real attention to and consistent attention to. There's been a ton of good done in government about HR transformation in the last in the last administration and prior ones, but a lot of it didn't get the resources or the attention or the staffing that it needs. So in order to actually make the moves the Biden administration wants to do, starting at the beginning to say, are you going through routine transactions too slowly? Are there a high number of vacant positions, particularly in those really important mission critical areas? Are you relying on manual paper processes where IT could actually do the job for you? And are your customers actually satisfied? If you're getting feedback about any of those, it's time to start from, maybe not start from scratch, but start from a position of, I'm willing to invest resources and time into this. Well, and one of the things, you mentioned information technology solutions, and it strikes me that what the, uh, the kind of the cutting edge IT people across government are saying is, the first thing we do is look at the way the mission's being delivered and think about the business chain and maybe it sounds like what you're suggesting is this is a terrific opportunity to look at that because if the services are being delivered ineffectively, why keep doing Why just digitize it? Why just transform it? Am I on the right track? Yeah, you're raising a great point. Too often, I think Congress, federal leaders, folks in the private sector say, let's just sprinkle some new technology and digital on top of that, and that will fix everything. It's not going to fix everything if you don't have the staff, the resources, and the organizational structures you need to actually make the, the mission change that you want to improve. So understanding how well our service is being delivered and where can we do so more efficiently with technology, with better organization, those are some of the initial questions to ask. 
Also, people often go at it from the approach of technology is going to save us money, and it might in the long term. But first, you've got to make sure your staff has that, those technology resources, has the skills they need, that you need, that you are hiring the right kind of people into HR who can actually understand data collection, data management, um, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. If you're not able to do that, then that technology is going to be a wasted asset on top of everything else. You uh, have a terrific quote in this report from Tom Muir of the Department of Defense that really summarizes, I think, the cultural challenge that these HR organizations are up against. And as usual, it comes down to culture more so than any of the other issues here. Tom said, most people will take poor services that they own over better services they don't. What changes that mentality, do you think? Is that incumbent upon the service providers to demonstrate their competence first? Or is it incumbent on the service receivers to say, I'm going to go out of my comfort zone and try something different to hope to get a better result? I think it first requires acknowledging the elephant in the room. Sometimes there's been a history of bad service provision. Sometimes there's been challenges for people who are really in need to be able to access the help that they require from HR. Acknowledging the problem upfront and saying we're willing to take this on and do something about it is a first step for both the service providers and receivers. But beyond that, transparent communication, consistent communication, and bringing the customers into the conversation around, here's how we're going to transform. It's not just about cutting people. It's not just about saving resources. It's about meeting the needs of federal leaders and fe the federal workforce. If you go to it, into it with those principles of actually trying to achieve the good of HR and not just trying to find efficiencies, I think you'll find conversations will open up from there. The final thing I'll say that came out in the report is be willing to do things really differently. Just because things were done in a certain way before does not mean that HR needs to be done in the exact same way. And in fact, it'd be great if we can move from a compliance-focused HR to an innovation and customer-focused HR. And I think a lot of the leaders in the Biden administration, if they start asking these questions around whether or not HR needs to be transformed and what they need to do to invest in it, they'll find a lot of good comes from that and the talent they're able to recruit and retain in government. Lauren, thanks very much as always. It's great to have you back. Thanks so much, Francis. Great to see you can find a link to that work at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website, too. You get a preview of every program when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest in Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, 
for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you again, talk to you again. But uh, here's, it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services, and these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of of of, uh, of a performance period but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the the mantra of transforming so what we saw in some of the early um fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing and it really took them a long time to start issuing them um but they're 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 they were basically asking for like for like services and that wasn't really a uh, a plan for transforming and it didn't the, many of the fair opportunities unfortunately did not show the the vision for transforming SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out, because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies, and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the 
uh, providers, the, the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting Obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies and lets the, lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.